Revelations 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to his works. The damned in hell know not the time when the day of judgment will be, but when the time comes it will be made known, and it will be the most dreadful news that ever was told in that world of misery. It is always a doleful time in hell. The world of darkness is always full of shrieks and doleful cries. But when the news is heard that the day appointed for the judgment is come, hell will be filled with louder shrieks and more dreadful cries than ever before. When Christ comes in the clouds of heaven to judgment, the news of it will fill both earth and hell with mourning and bitter crying. We read that all the kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, and so shall all the inhabitants of hell. And then must the souls of the wicked come up to be united to their bodies and stand before the judge. They shall not come willingly, but shall be dragged forth as a malefactor is dragged out of his dungeon to execution. They were unwilling when they died to leave the earth to go to hell, but now they will be much more unwilling to come out of hell to go to the last judgment. It will be no deliverance to them. It will only be a coming forth to their execution. They will hang back, but must come. The devils and damned spirits must come up together. The last trumpet will then be heard. This will be the most terrible sound to wicked men and devils that ever was heard. And not only the wicked that shall then be found dwelling on the earth shall hear it, but also those that are in their graves. John 5:28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And then must the souls of the wicked enter into their bodies again, which will be prepared only to be organs of torment and misery. It will be a dreadful sight to them when they come to their bodies again, those bodies which were formerly used by them as the organs and instruments of sin and wickedness, in whose appetites and lusts they indulged and gratified. The parting of soul and body was dreadful to them when they died, but their meeting again at the resurrection will be more dreadful. They shall receive their bodies loathsome and hideous, agreeably to that shame and everlasting contempt to which they shall arise. As the bodies of the saints shall arise more glorious than when on earth, and shall be like unto Christ's glorious body, so we may well suppose that the bodies of the wicked will arise proportionably more deformed and hideous. Oftentimes in this world a polluted soul is hid in a fine and comely body, but it will not be so then when things shall appear as they are. The form and aspect of the body shall be answerable to the hellish deformity of the soul. Thus shall they rise out of their graves, and shall lift up their eyes, and see the Son of God in the clouds of heaven, in the glory of his Father, with all his holy angels with him. Then shall they see their judge in his awful majesty, which will be the most amazing sight to them that ever they saw, and will still add new horrors.
that awful and terrible majesty in which he will appear and the manifestation of his infinite holiness will pierce their souls. They shall come forth out of their graves all trembling and astonished. Fearfulness shall surprise them. Number five, then must they appear before their judge to give up their account. They will find no mountains or rocks to fall upon them that can cover them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Many of them will see others at that time who were formerly their acquaintance, who shall appear with glorious bodies and with joyful countenances and songs of praise, and mounting up as with wings to meet the Lord in the air while they are left behind. Many shall see their former neighbors and acquaintance, their companions, their brothers and their wives taken, and they left. They shall be summoned to go and appear before the judgment seat, and go they must. However unwilling, they must stand at Christ's left hand in the midst of devils and wicked men. This shall again add still further amazement, and will cause their horror still to be in a further degree than ever. With what horror will that company come together? And then shall they be called to their account. Then shall be brought to light the hidden things of darkness. Then shall all the wickedness of their hearts be made known. Then shall be declared the actual wickedness that they have been guilty of. Then shall appear their secret sins that they have kept hid from the eye of the world. Then shall be manifested in their true light those sins that they used to plead for and excuse and justify and then shall all their sins be set forth and all their dreadful aggravations all their filthiness will be brought to light to their everlasting shame and contempt then shall it appear how heinous many of those things were that they in their lifetime made light of then will it appear how dreadful their guilt is in thus ill-treating so glorious and blessed a Savior and all the world shall see it, and many shall rise up in judgment against them, and condemn them, their companions whom they tempted to wickedness, others whom they have hardened in sin by their example, shall rise up against many of them, and the heathen that have had no advantages in comparison of them, and many of whom have yet lived better lives than they, shall rise up against them, and shall be called to a special account. The judge will reckon with them, they shall be speechless, they shall be struck dumb, their own consciences bearing testimony against them, and shall cry aloud against them, for they shall then see how great and terrible a God he is, against whom they have sinned. Then shall they stand at the left hand, while they see others whom they knew on earth sitting at the right hand of Christ in glory, shining forth as the Son, accepted of Christ, and sitting with him to judge and condemn them. Number 6. Then the sentence of condemnation shall be pronounced by the judge upon them. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Depart from me, cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels.
This sentence will be pronounced with awful majesty, and there shall be great indignation, and dreadful wrath shall then appear in the judge, and in his voice, with which he shall pronounce the sentence. And what a horror and amazement will these words strike into the hearts of the wicked, on whom they shall be pronounced. Every word and syllable shall be like the most amazing thunder to them, and shall pierce their souls like the fiercest lightning. The judge will bid them depart from him. He will drive them from his presence as exceedingly abominable to him, and he shall give them the epithet accursed. They shall be an accursed company, and he will not only bid them depart from his presence, but into everlasting fire, to dwell there as their only fit habitation. And what shows the dreadfulness of the fire is that it is prepared for the devil and his angels. They shall lie forever in the same fire in which the devils, those grand enemies of God, shall be tormented." When this sentence shall be pronounced, there shall be in the vast company at the left hand tremblings and mourning and crying and gnashing of teeth in a new manner beyond all that was ever before. If the devils, those proud and lofty spirits, tremble many ages beforehand at the bare thoughts of this sentence, how will they tremble when it comes to be pronounced, and how, alas, will wicked men tremble? Their anguish will be aggravated by hearing that blessed sentence pronounced on those who shall be at the right hand. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Number 7. Then the sentence shall be executed. When the judge bids them depart, they must go, however loath yet they must go. Immediately upon the finishing of the judgment and the pronouncing of the sentence will come the end of the world. The frame of this world shall be dissolved. The the pronouncing of that sentence will probably be followed with amazing thunders that shall rend the heavens and shake the earth out of its place. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Then shall the sea and the waves roar, and the rock shall be thrown down, and the mountain shall rent asunder, and there shall be one universal wreck of this great world. Then shall the heavens be dissolved, and then the earth shall be set on fire. As God in wrath once destroyed the world by a flood of water, so now shall he cause it to be all drowned in a deluge of fire. And the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Second Peter 3.10 And that great company of devils and wicked men must then enter into those everlasting burnings, to which they are sentenced. 
Number eight. In this condition, they shall remain throughout the never-ending ages of eternity. Their punishment shall be then complete, and it shall remain in this completion forever. Now shall all that come upon them which they so long trembled for fear of, while their souls were in a separate state, they will dwell in a fire that never shall be quenched, and here they must wear out eternity. Here they must wear out one thousand years after another, and that without end. There is no reckoning up the millions of years or millions of ages. All arithmetic here fails. No rules of multiplication can reach the amount, for there is no end. They shall have nothing to do to pass away their eternity, but to conflict with those torments. This will be their work forever and ever. God shall have no other use or employment for them. This is a way that they must answer the end of their being, and they never shall have any rest nor any atonement, but their torments will hold up to their height and shall never grow any easier by their being accustomed to them. Time will seem long to them. Every moment shall seem long to them, but they shall never have done with the ages of their torment. Application Hence what need we have to take care that our foundation for eternity be sure. They who build on a false foundation are not secure from this misery. They who build up a refuge of lies will find their refuge must fail them. Their wall that they have daubed with untempered mortar will fall. The more dreadful the misery is, the more need we have to see that we are safe from it. It will be dreadful indeed to be disappointed in such a case, to please ourselves with dreams and vain imaginations of our being the children of God and of going to heaven, and at last to awake in hell, to see our refuge swept away and our hope eternally gone, and to find ourselves swallowed up in flames, and to see an endless duration of it before us. How dreadful will this be! There will be many that will be thus disappointed. Many shall come to the door and find it shut, who expected to find it open, and shall knock. But Christ will tell them that he knows them not, and he will bid them depart. And it will be in vain for them to tell Christ what affections they have had, and how religious they were, and how well they were accounted of on earth. They shall have no other answer but depart from me. I know you not, ye that work iniquity. Let us all consider this, and give all diligence to see that we build sure, if by any means we may at last be found in Christ. Let us see to it that we are indeed well secured from this dreadful misery. What will it avail us to please ourselves with the notion of being converted and being beloved of God? And what will it avail us to have the good opinion of our neighbors for a few days, if we must at last be cast into hell, and appear at the day of judgment at the left hand, and have our eternal portion with unbelievers?' 
A false hope cannot profit us. It is a thousand times worse than none. And who are more miserable than those who think that God has pardoned their sins and who expect to have a portion with the righteous hereafter, but are all the while going headlong down into this dreadful misery? What case can be more awful than the case of those who are thus led blindfold to the slaughter, promising themselves a happiness that is never like to come, but on the contrary are sinking into endless tribulation and anguish? Let every one, therefore, who entertains hope of his own state, see to it that he be well built." And let him not rest in past attainment, but reach forth towards those things that are before with all his might. Hence we derive an argument for the awakening of ungodly men. This indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish is a portion allotted to you if you continue in your present condition. Thou art the man spoken of. It is to thee that all this misery is assigned by the threatening of God's holy word. It is on thee that this wrath of God abides. Thou art now in a state of condemnation to this misery. John 3.18 He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is not already executed upon you, but you are already condemned to it. You are not merely exposed to condemnation, but you are under the actual sentence of condemnation. This is a portion that is already allotted to you by the law, and you are under the law and not under grace. This misery is a misery into which you are every day in danger of dropping. You are not safe from it one hour. How soon it may come upon you, you know not. You hang over it by a thread that is continually growing more and more feeble. This dreadful misery in all its successive part belongs to you and is your due. Your friends and your neighbors and all around you, if they knew what your condition was, might well lift up a loud and bitter cry over you whenever they behold you and say, here is an unhappy being condemned to be given up eternally into the hands of devils, to be tormented by them. Here is a miserable man who is in danger every day of being swallowed up in the bottomless gulf of woe and misery. Here is a wretched undone creature condemned to lie down forever in unquenchable fire and to dwell in everlasting burnings, and he has no interest in a savior. He has nothing to defend him. He has nothing wherewith to appease the wrath of an offended God. Here consider two things. Number one, you have no reason to question whether those future miseries and torments which are threatened in God's word are realities. Do not flatter yourself with thinking that it may not be so. Say not, How do I know that there is any such misery to be inflicted in another world? How do I know but all is a fable, and that when I come to die there will be an end of me, and that it will be with me as it is with the beasts? 
do not say, How do I know but that all those things are only bugbears of man's inventing? How do I know that the scriptures that threaten those things are the word of God? Or if he has threatened those things, it may be it is only to frighten men to keep them to their duty. It may be he never intends to do as he threatens. I say that there is no ground for any such suspicion, neither is there any reason for it. For that there should be no future punishment is not only contrary to scripture, but reason. It is most unreasonable for you to think that there should be no future punishment. To suppose that God who had made man a rational creature, able to know his duty, and sensible that he is deserving punishment when he does not should let man alone and let him live as he will and never punish him for his sins and never make any difference between the good and the bad that he should make the world of mankind and then let it alone and let men live all their days in wickedness and adultery murder robbery and persecution and the like and suffer them to live in prosperity and never punish them that he should suffer them to prosper in the world far beyond many good men and never punish them hereafter how unreasonable it is to suppose that he who made the world should leave things in such confusion and never take any care of the government of his creatures and that he should never judge his reasonable creatures reason teaches that there is a god and reason teaches that if there be he must be a wise and just God, and that he must take care to order things wisely and justly among his creatures, and therefore it is unreasonable to suppose a man dies like a beast and that there is no future punishment. And if there be a future punishment, it is unreasonable to suppose that God is not somewhere or other given men warning of it, and reveal to them what kind of punishment they must expect. Will a wise lawgiver keep his subjects in ignorance as to what punishment they must expect for breaking his laws? And if God has revealed it, where is it to be found but in the scripture? What revelation have we of a future state if it is not there revealed? Where does God tell mankind what kind of rewards and punishments they must expect? if not here, and it is abundantly manifest by innumerable evidences that these threatenings are the threatenings of God, that this awful book is his revelation. And since God is threatened, there is no room to question whether he will fulfill, for he has said it, yea, he has sworn it, that he will repay the wicked to his face according to threatenings, and that he will glorify himself in their destruction, and that this heaven and earth shall pass away. How foolish then is the thought that God may only threaten such punishment to frighten men, and that he never intends to execute it. For as surely as God is God, he will do as he said. He will destroy the mountains of iniquity as he has threatened, and there shall be no escaping. How vain are the thoughts of those who flatter themselves that God will not fulfill the threatenings, and that he only frightens and deceives men in them, as though God could in no other way govern the world than by making use of fallacious tricks and deceits to delude his subjects. 
those that entertain such thoughts, however they may harden themselves by them for the present, will cherish them but a little while. Their experience will soon convince them that God is a God of truth, and that his threatenings are no delusions. They will be convinced that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, and that his threatenings are substantial and not mere shadows when it will be too late to escape them, Deuteronomy 29, 18-21. Lest there should be among you man, or woman, or family, or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart, to add drunkenness to thirst." The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Psalm 50:21. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Number two. There is no reason to suspect that possibly ministers set forth this matter beyond what it really is. That possibly it is not so dreadful and terrible as is pretended, and that ministers strain the description of it beyond just bounds. Some may be ready to think so, because it seems to them incredible that there should be so dreadful a misery to any creature, but there is no reason for any such thoughts as these, if we consider first, how great a punishment the sins of wicked men deserve. The scripture teaches us that any one sin deserves eternal death, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that it deserves the eternal curse of God. Deuteronomy 27.26 Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Galatians 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Which things imply that the least sin deserves total and eternal destruction. Eternal death, in the least degree of it amounts to such a degree of misery as is the perfect destruction of the creature, the loss of all good, and perfect misery. And so does being accursed of God imply it. To be cursed of God is to be devoted to perfect and ultimate destruction. The scripture teaches that wicked men shall be punished to their full desert that they shall pay all the debt. Secondly, 
There is no reason to think that ministers describe the misery of the wicked beyond what it is, because the scripture teaches us that this is one end of ungodly men, to show the dreadfulness and power of God's wrath. Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? It is often spoken of as part of the glory of God that he is a terrible and dreadful God. Psalm 68.35 O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places, that he is a consuming fire. Psalm 66.3 How terrible art thou in thy works! Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. And that herein one part of the glory of God is represented as consisting that it is so dreadful a thing to injure and offend God. The wrath of a king is as the roaring of a lion. The wrath of a man is sometimes dreadful. But the future punishment of ungodly men is to show what the wrath of God is. It is to show the whole universe the glory of God's Power, Second Thessalonians one nine, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And therefore the punishment which we have described is not at all incredible. And there is no reason to think that it has been in the least described beyond what it really is. Thirdly, the scripture teaches that the wrath of God on wicked men is dreadful beyond all that we can conceive. Psalm 90 verse 11, Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. As it is but little that we know of God, as we know and can conceive of but little of his power and his greatness, so it is but a little that we know or can conceive of the dreadfulness of his wrath. And therefore there is no reason to suppose that we set it forth beyond what it is. We have rather reason to suppose that after we have said our utmost and thought our utmost, all that we have said or thought is but a faint shadow of the reality. We are taught that the reward of the saints is beyond all that can be spoken or conceived of. Ephesians 3.20 Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And so we may rationally suppose that the punishment of the wicked will also be inconceivably dreadful. 
Fourthly, there is no reason to think that we set forth the misery of hell beyond the reality because the scripture teaches us that the wrath of God is according to his fear. Psalm 90 verse 11. This passage asserts that the wrath of God is according to his awful attributes, his greatness and his might, his holiness and power. The majesty of God is exceedingly great and awful, but according to his awfulness, so is his wrath. This is the meaning of the words, and therefore we must conclude that the wrath of God is indeed beyond all expression and signification terrible. How great and awful indeed is his majesty, who has made heaven and earth, and in what majesty will he come to judge the world at the last day? He will come to take vengeance on ungodly men. The sight of his majesty will strike wicked men with apprehensions and fears of destruction. Fifthly, the description which I have given of the tribulation and wrath of ungodly men is not beyond the truth, for it is a very description which the scriptures give of it. The scriptures represent that the wicked shall be cast into a furnace of fire. Not only a fire, but a furnace. Matthew 13:42, And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Revelations 20.15 And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Psalm 21.8-9 Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. If, therefore, I have described this misery beyond the truth, then the scriptures have done the same. It is evident, then, that there is no reason to flatter yourselves with such imaginations. If God be true, you shall find the wrath of God in your future misery full as great. And not only so, but much greater. You will find that we know but little, and have said but little about it, and that all our expressions are faint in comparison of the reality. Section 3 Hence may be derived an argument to convince wicked men of the justice of God in allotting such a portion to them. Wicked men, when they hear it declared how awful the misery is of which they are in danger, often have their hearts lifted up against God for it. It seems to them very hard for God to deal so with any of his creatures. They cannot see why God should be so very severe with wicked men for their sin and folly for a little while in this world. And when they consider that he hath threatened such punishments, they are ready to entertain blasphemous thoughts against him. I would therefore endeavor to show you how justly you lie exposed to that indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish of which you have heard. Particularly I would show first how just it would be in God forever to leave you to yourself. 
it would be most just in God to refuse to be with you or help you. You have embraced and refused to let go those things which God hates. You have refused to forsake your lusts and to abandon those ways of sin that are abominable to Him. When God has commanded you to forsake them, how have you refused and still have retained them and been obstinate in it? Neither is your heart yet to this very day diverted from sin, but it is dear to you. You allow it the best place of your heart. You place it on the throne there. Would it be any wonder, therefore, if God should utterly leave you, seeing you will not leave sin? God has often declared his hatred of iniquity, and is it any wonder that he is not willing to dwell with that which is so odious to him? Is it not reasonable that God should insist that you should part with your lusts in order to your enjoying his presence, and seeing you have so long refused, how just would it be if God should utterly forsake you? You have retained and harbored God's mortal enemies, sin and Satan. How justly, therefore, might God stand at a distance? Is God obliged to be present with any who harbor his enemies and refuse to forsake them? Would God be unjust if he should leave you utterly to yourself, so long as you will not forsake your idols? Consider how just it would be in God to let you alone, since you have left God alone. You have not sought God for his presence and help as you ought to have done. You have neglected him, and would it not therefore be just if he should neglect you? How long have many of you lived in neglecting to seek him? How long have you restrained prayer before him? Since, therefore, you refused so much as to seek the presence and help of God, and did not think them worth praying to him for, how justly might he forever withhold them, and so leave you wholly to yourself? You have done what in you lies to drive God away from you, and to cause him wholly to leave you. When God in times past has not let you alone, but has been unwearied in awakening you, have you not resisted the motions and influences of his spirit? Have you not refused to be conducted by him, or to yield to him? Zechariah 7.11 But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears at they should not hear. How justly, therefore, might God refuse to move or strive any more? When God has been knocking at your door, you have refused to open to him. How just is it, therefore, that he should go away and knock at your door no more? When the Spirit of God has been striving with you, have you not been guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit by giving way to a quarreling temper and by yielding yourself a prey to lust? And have not some of you quenched the spirit and been guilty of backsliding? And is God obliged, notwithstanding all this, to continue the striving of a spirit with you, to be resisted and grieved still, as long as you please? On the contrary, would it not be just if his spirit should everlastingly leave you and let you alone? 
Number two, how just it would be if you should be cursed in all your concerns in this world. It would be just if God should curse you in everything and cause everything you enjoy or are concerned in to turn to your destruction. You live here in all the concerns of life as an enemy to God. You have used all your enjoyments and possessions against God and to his dishonor. Would it not therefore be just if God should curse you in them and turn them all against you into your destruction? What temporal blessing has God given you, which you have not used in the service of your lusts, in the service of sin and Satan? If you have been in prosperity, you have made use of it to God's dishonor. When you have waxed fat, you have forgotten the God that made you. How just, therefore, would it be if God's curse should attend all your enjoyments? Whatsoever employments you have followed, you have not served God in them, but God's enemies. How just, therefore, would it be if you should be cursed in all your employments? The means of grace that you have enjoyed you have not made use of as you ought to have done. You have made light of them and have treated them in a careless, disregardful manner. You have been the worse and not the better for them. You have so attended and used Sabbath and spiritual opportunities that you have only made them occasions of manifesting your contempt of God and Christ and divine things by your careless and profane manner of attending them. Would it not therefore be most just that God's curse should attend your means of grace and the opportunities which you enjoy for the salvation of your soul? You have improved your time only to heap up provocations and add to your transgressions in opposition to all the calls and warnings that could be given you. How just, therefore, would it be if God should turn life itself into a curse to you and suffer you to live only to fill up the measure of your sins? You have, contrary to God's counsel, made use of your own enjoyments to the hurt of your soul. And therefore, if God should turn them to the hurt and ruin of your soul, he would but deal with you as you have dealt with yourself. God has earnestly counseled you times without number to use your temporal enjoyments for your spiritual good, but you have refused to hearken to him. You have foolishly perverted them to treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. You have voluntarily used what God has given you for your spiritual hurt to increase your guilt and wound your own soul. And therefore, if God's curse should attend them, so that they should all turn to the ruin of your soul, you would but be dealt with as you have dealt with yourself. But the greatest objection of wicked men against the justice of the future punishment which God hath threatened is from the greatness of that punishment that God should inflict upon the finally impenitent torment so extreme, so amazingly dreadful, to have their bodies cast into a furnace of fire of such immense heat and fierceness, there to lie unconsumed and yet full of sense and feeling, glowing within and without, and the soul full of yet more dreadful horror and torment, and so to remain without any remedy or rest forever and ever and ever. And therefore I would mention several things to you to show how justly you lie exposed to so dreadful a punishment. This punishment, as dreadful as it is, is not more so than the being is great and glorious against whom you have sinned. 
It is true this punishment is dreadful beyond all expression or conception, and so is the greatness and gloriousness of God as much beyond all expression or conception. And yet you have continued to sin against Him. Yea, you have been bold and presumptuous in your sins, and have multiplied transgressions against Him without end. The wrath of God that you have heard of, dreadful as it is, is not more dreadful than that majesty which you have despised and trampled on is awful. This punishment is indeed enough to fill one with horror, barely to think of it. And so it would fill you with at least equal horror to think of sinning so exceedingly against so great and glorious a God, if you conceived of it aright. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's being so infinitely great and excellent has not influenced you not to sin against Him, but you have done it boldly and made nothing of it, thousands of times. And why should this misery, being so infinitely great and dreadful, hinder God from inflicting it on you? 1 Samuel 2.25 If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? If you complain of this punishment as being too great, then why has it not been great enough to deter you from sinning? As great as it is, you have made nothing of it. When God threatened to inflict it on you, you did not mind his threatenings, but were bold to disobey him and to do those very things for which he threatened this punishment. You have thus bid defiance to the Almighty, even when you saw the sword of his vindictive wrath uplifted, that it might fall upon your head. Will it therefore be any wonder if he shall make you know how terrible that wrath is in your utter destruction? The Portion of the Wicked by Jonathan Edwards this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.